0: I had a conversation not too long ago, and conversations have a way of clarifying things um, in my head, Um, but it was a conversation with an um, elderly gentleman who happens to work out at the same club or gym that my wife and I attend. Um, I said he's an elderly guy, he's a a Catholic, um, great heart, and loves to tell everybody in the gym about God. Um, He put a lot of Protestants to shame with how vocal he is. Uh, about the Lord. He cusses like a sailor, but, he, uh, but he, 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 he talks to everyone about God. And somewhere along the way, someone told him, that I'm a pastor. That's not something that I broadcast because I'd rather people get to know me for me, not because I, I have a title. Um, so, well, he found out I'm, I'm a pastor, so that kind of made me a magnet for questions for him. So he could come up to me and ask me questions, sometimes about marriage, sometimes family. Uh, one time in particular, and that leads us into the direction that we're moving this morning in the text. He stopped me and he says, so, and you can imagine a Catholic uh, asking this question, so tell me, why should people go to church, right? It's it's a good question. I mean, how would you answer that? Why do you come to church? Well, he asked the question and and he he wasn't, it didn't seem to be testing me, you know, to see if I could tell him the right answer. He was just asking because he was curious about what I'd say. In that moment, instead of answering the question, um, I was... I don't know if you call it moved or guided, but I thought, you know what? Instead of answering questions, I'm just going to ask him questions. So, so I asked him. I said, "So tell me, do you date your wife?" And he goes, "Yeah, I date my wife." I said, "So why do you go on dates with your wife?" He said, "Well, well, she's my wife, and I, and I love my wife, and so I, I like spending time, and so we we go on dates because I love my wife." I'm like, "That's a good answer, right?" It's a good answer. You go to, on dates because you love your wife. I said, "Why do you love your wife?" Well, I. I'm married to her. We're in covenant together. He didn't actually say covenant, uh, but he just married to her. And, and she's beautiful to me. I and mean, she's beautiful inside, outside, and she loves me. That's why. I said, well, um, I think that's, when it comes right down to it, boils right down to it, that's, that's why we should go to church. Not because we have to. Not because you're going to gain any points with the Lord, because you won't, by attending church. Um, but God's people should gather together to worship Christ because we love him. Because he first immeasurably loved us as his people. And what is a date, right? A a date is you you always love your wife or your husband. At least that's how it should be. I realize not every marriage is that way. Um, But a date is a time in which you set aside all the normal activities of life and you spend time just focused on each other. And that really is what corporate worship is about, is, is taking time out of the ordinary routine of our week, we're not at work, we're not mowing lawns, we're not doing laundry, and we come together as a community of faith to focus on Christ, the one that we love, and to spend time with him collectively as a body, listening to his word, him speak to us, um, celebrating back to him who he is. That is it's, it, we gather together because, because we love him, and we love him because he is inwardly and outwardly beautiful to us. That's the answer, and there's a lot of reasons to go to church, but that to me, when it boils right down to it, we, we gather together to worship because we love Christ, because he first loved us, because he is beautiful. And what I want to do this morning is in a very, um, if you will, dark text, I want to show all of us the beauty of Christ this morning. Um, <laughs> You and I both know that people oftentimes show their true colors um, in the most difficult times. of um, Crisis and pressure, like the, the, what's really on the inside tends to come out. Um, and in this particular text that we're looking at this morning, the arrest of Jesus, um, this is a dark hour, and you see true colors come out. And we're going to look at the beauty of Christ alongside some other rather ugly colors that come out. And, um, and we're going to proceed with three words Um, The last one being beauty. Looking at betrayal, uh, brutality, and the last one, beauty. Betrayal, brutality, and beauty. Those are kind of the three words upon which I want us to hang our thoughts, and we're going to end with the beauty of Christ. If you were with us last week to put you in the context of things, and for whatever reason, hold on one second, I have... going to leave it? Nope. I used to be a real Macintosh Apple champion, but I'm losing. I'm losing my confidence here. If you were with us last week, you realize there was a pivotal event in Jesus' life. Um, In the hours before the darkness or hours before his arrest, what is Jesus doing? But we find him fervently praying to his Father. That is, he is communing with God. He is asking, I think, amongst other things, for strength. Um, So he is preparing for the moment we're about to read in prayer. Um, And right alongside that, you realize his disciples failed to do what he was doing and failed to do what Jesus told them to do, namely pray so you don't enter into temptation. And so as we come into this text, which I'm about to read, you realize Jesus is fully and completely prepared. He has prepared himself on his knees. The the disciples have have been asleep, and so they are going to be caught completely off guard um, when um, the hammer falls. And here in this text, we read about Jesus' arrest. This is where he's taken into captivity. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, that is while he's telling his disciples, you need to be praying, there came a crowd, And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, I want you to ask a question here that we're going to answer later. Why do you think Jesus even took the time to ask the question? Verse 49, we'll answer that in a second. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this, this is also a very important statement, is your hour and the power of darkness. The sum of what just took place, obviously, is that the governing authorities of Jerusalem have conspired together with one of Jesus' own trusted disciples to find him in a private place. Um, The sense is that they wouldn't dare touch him in the public place because he was too popular with the crowd. It would start a riot. So instead of doing that, they did it in a rather underhanded, dark, manipulative way, and they, they, they conspired against him and took him in private. And this is the scene. And those last words of verse 53 is Jesus' assessment of what's happening. He says, this is your hour. In other words, this time frame belongs to you. It's been given to you. You've been given divine permission to use this time. And it is a time where the power of darkness is going to have its way. That's a rather ominous and, and haunting statement. But Jesus is acknowledging that what, what's transpiring, what's going to follow, is is, is, is if you will, God the Father allowing darkness to envelop and take hold of his Son. It's, it's, it's the hour of darkness. So this, this, this time frame that we're talking about is a, is a very dark time, a time of wickedness and evil. And out of this, or in the midst of this dark hour, we see colors come out. And one of the first ugly colors we see come out of the person of Judah or, excuse me, Judas. Judas, the betrayer. All the while, um, Judas is, if you will, pretended loyalty and devotion to Jesus. No one even suspected that he was the one who was going to betray Jesus, but, but he, in fact, was. And here he comes, if you will, out of the closet as the one who is um, snitching. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, leading the charge to the private place where he was to be arrested. Judas is an interesting figure. Um, in one sense, he's a, a type. He, he's, a, um, he's an example of, of many of us fallen humans. We tend to throw him under the bus and think, well, he's the only person in history who has ever done such a thing, but, it's, but he's not. As you peel back the layers as to why he pretends to be a disciple on the one hand... And then, of course, in this text, the masquerade is done. He comes out into the open. You realize there's something else that motivated his, his, um, his following of Jesus. And what the Gospels reveal about his heart is that his heart loved money. Perhaps he thought that he was coming to the end of his cash cow. Maybe he sensed that things were going down, and this was his last opportunity to make 30 pieces of silver. The Gospel of John refers to him as a thief in chapter 12 and verse 6 who was a treasurer and one who felt like he could dip into the funds anytime he wanted to. So he was an embezzler. That tells you his heart was tied to wealth. His heart was tied to money. His heart was tied to possessions. And when you look at it from that light, you realize how many people in the world worship money more than they do Christ. As a fundamental motive of life, of worshiping money. In that way, we share, or humanity shares, the same kind of idolatry. Not only so, but um, you realize in this, to do this, to follow Jesus for the sake of, of wealth, is to make Jesus a means to another end. A means to another end. And if you are, I believe biblically, if you are following Jesus as a means to something else, then you're not really following Jesus at all. C.S. Lewis made um, the following statement, and I just have to paraphrase it. He came to the realization that if you're coming to God for any other reason than God, then at the end of the day, you're really not coming to God. You're coming to him for something else that's a God. That's true even of our salvation. If we think, I, I come to Christ as a means to being saved from hell, then that's it. I come to Jesus because the benefit is that he... Saves me from hell. And that's it. I get to somehow live in a floaty place called heaven. That itself is both unbiblical and unchristian. We don't simply see Jesus or come to Jesus as a means to be delivered from hell. That's, we come to Jesus to be delivered to God and Christ himself. That is, in the, in the, in the biblical framework of things... Like we're saved ultimately so that groom and bride can be brought together. We are rescued from hell so as to be one with God. To be united to Christ. To as sons and daughters who have been redeemed. To be brought into the loving embrace of the Father. And to hear that voice, that heavenly voice say now the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will be with them. So any kind of coming to Christ without Christ or God himself at the center is, is fundamentally a form of idolatry. Author and writer um, Eric Raymond put it this way. It is rather colorful and um, right on point when he said, some folks see Jesus as a means to an end. And, and, and as I read this next part, ask yourself, is this what I think? He can help you in life, improve your broken marriage, inject some much-needed morality, provide a few set of, a new set of friends, give hope, make you feel better, and perhaps even give you a purpose statement to enjoy your best life now. Little dig there. So in this case, by the way, pause. Um, do I want to say this? Yes. Jesus as a means to health, wealth and prosperity in this life is not Christian. Amen. So, in this case, we have Jesus as salvation as the salvation ferry like a boat that brings the sinner to enjoy the island of amusements and self-fulfillment. Jesus is a means to bring about a seriously selfish and dare I say idolatrous end. No one likes to be used. It diminishes your value to be used. I don't want to be a means to another end. I've got to back up here. And neither do you. Whenever you're a means to an end, it means something else that someone is pursuing the benefit or side benefit is more important than you are. I mean, think about this scenario for a second. You, you husbands out there, you decide, you know what, you are going to give your wife the day of her life, you send her to a spa. She has a massage. She has a mani-pedi and a facial. And, and then you pick her up, and you have flowers. You're dressed in a suit. And you take her on a, let's just say, a really expensive dinner cruise out in the bay. And it's the best food, the best music, best candlelight. The scene is romantic. You've done everything possible, everything correct. It's, it's just the height of romance. And, and your wife looks across the table at you over the candlelight and says, Sweetheart, why'd you do all this for me? And you, in a mo- moment of... Um, Foolish honesty, say, did it all for the sex. Yeah, I did say that word. I did say that word. It's a biblical word, it's OK, and it's, it, it's proper in the context of marriage, right? What would your wife think of you at that moment? My wife just learned how to shoot a gun, and I wouldn't want to be around her. <laughs> if I said that, it's like she, no woman wants to be a means to another end, that, 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 that benefit. Now, I know some of you guys are thinking, are you serious? So, so that's not supposed to be the end game? No. It's, how, how, how honored is your wife when, she, when you simply would say, I just I just love you. I, just, I couldn't help myself. I, just, I had to. I just wanted to be with you. Maybe I hope that will happen later, but, you know, get what I'm saying. It's just you. <laughs> nobody wants to be a, a means to an end. Uh, nobody. Because it diminishes the value of the one you're with. and. And yet, I, I wonder how, how many times, oh, by the way, what's interesting is that when Jesus becomes the end of your life, the assuming center, the one that you want to be with more than anything else, all the rest of the stuff is thrown in. That is to say, um, at the resurrection, we are guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. But not outside of Christ And without Christ and God's presence at the center of it. That's what makes everything else come to life. Um, Salvation with God at the center is like having a light bulb without the light on. The center, centrality of God's presence is the center of, of, of everything. And everything at the end of the day will be thrown in in its proper time. But again, I wonder, just pause for a second here and and realize the mistake, if you will, the sin of Judas was to come to Jesus as a means to another end. If you were to take a a moment of just introspection and ask yourself, why, why why do I come to church? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? Why do I profess to be a follower of Jesus? What is the end goal? Is it him or something else? I'd venture to say that the, that the churches are populated with some people who, for them, Jesus is a means to an end. And if, if in your own assessment of own, your own life, you realize, yeah, that's, that's, that's me, I, Jesus as a means to an end. One, you've got to recognize this idolatry. Two, in coming to that awareness, God is really being gracious to you in this moment of saying, you know what? Um, listen to my voice renounce the fact that you have treated me as a means to an man. You have used me for other reasons and know that I am gracious and forgiving and I've paid for that sin. And then ask the Lord to restore to you the joy of your salvation centered in the presence of God himself. That's what he would call you to this morning. Do you realize Judas really represents a lot of different kinds of people who use religion as a means to financial gain or some other form of gain? Well, that's one of the dark colors that comes out And many of us um, can probably say we can attest to the fact that we've shared in that dark color before, because we, like Judas, are sinners. But Judas is not alone. You notice the other actors in this little scene, the other 11 disciples, the ones who are, for all practical purposes, more true than Judas, we see them resort to brutality, brutality. And when those who were around him, that is around Jesus, his 11 disciples now, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The, the, the scene is, is both tragic <laughs> and it's a, a little bit humorous at the same time. As I said, they were in private. You have Judas is gone. There's 11 disciples. And a little earlier in the, the, the chapter 22, we learn that they have two swords. They're obviously panicked. panicked. They're, they're caught off guard. They don't know what to do. They, they, see the, they hear the clinking of swords. They hear all the, the feet and, of this small little army that's come against Jesus. And, and they don't know what to do. So they ask the Lord. They ask Jesus, what should we do? We got two swords. You want us to fight? As I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit humorous. you got two swords. Most of them are fishermen, one's a tax collector. Against a small army that's fully outfitted and armed. Like, really? It's also just a tad humorous, because before Jesus even has a chance to answer, or before they, they wait for him to tell, tell them what to do, what do we do? Do we strike? Before he even responds... The sense is one of the disciples decides he's going to take matters into his own head. He takes one of those two swords and he, I'm guessing, tried to decapitate a guy, tried to mortally wound a guy. The Gospel of John tells us that, identifies this one disciple as Peter, you know, the one, the rock upon whom Christ built his church. Horrible aim. Not a gladiator. Not a Roman centurion. He grew up fishing the waters of Galilee. All he manages to do is amputate this guy's ear. That's it. But that's one of the colors that comes out in the middle of this crisis and in the middle of this injustice. That betrays something about the heart of Peter and probably the rest of the disciples. A rather arrogant heart to think, I'm going to stand and defend Jesus against an entire army, or at least a crowd. It certainly shows that he is um, completely clueless and ignorant of both the teaching and the way and the purpose of Christ. He's just so out of sync with his Lord. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples, do not return evil for evil. We do not do an eye for an eye, or in this case, an eye for an ear. We overcome evil with goodness and with love and with compassion as Jesus taught and as he lived. So it's, it's completely outside of the realm of the purpose and the teaching and the life of Christ for him to take up the sword and strike. And as I said, it reveals an ignorance, at least on two different levels. I already mentioned one. At one level and probably the deepest level, it simply misses the whole point and Jesus has to go to the cross. He has to have this injustice committed against him. He has to suffer so that they can go free. That it shows a complete ignorance of the teaching of Jesus, what he said. On another level, I mean, does Jesus really need our defense? <laughs> Think about it just for a moment. It's like Peter was there. He was on the boat, the fishing boat with the wind howling and the waves splashing over and f- feeling the fear of, of being capsized and drowned, and Jesus stands up and with a word commands everything to stop and everything just goes fooom. And they were afraid because of the power that even the wind and waves obey him. Jesus need to be defended. That he was there when Jesus cast out a legion of demons out of the man from Gerasene, or Ganesha, and sent him into the Sea of Galilee. He commands legions of demons, and they must, they're forced to obey his word. He's healed the sick, he's raised the dead. Does Jesus really seriously need defending? And that's the Gospel of Matthew's point, when Jesus says different words. Where he says, don't you think, sorry I'm a little animated with this. Don't you think that with a whisper I could ask for twelve legions of angels and my father would come and he would reduce his place to ash. I don't need your help. And it's presumptuous and arrogant. Think you do. That Jesus needs us to defend him. So here you have this, this, this heart of, just call it an arrogant, I can do it. I can take justice into my own hands. I can make this happen kind of, of, of heart, which, you know, I look at that and I can, sh- I can share in that too wanting to take matters into my own hands, especially when it comes to justice. I mean, all of us have a strong sense of justice. I don't care what you say, you have a strong sense of justice. And when you feel injured, when you feel like the victim, everything in you wants that injustice to be satisfied. We may not take out a sword or an AK-47 to do that, but we can do it by creating alliances and creating divisions and creating teams. We can do it by, by gossiping and slandering. We can do it by withholding kindness to someone because we are retaining the rights to judgment that's exactly what peter is doing here he has seized himself and jesus as the victim and now he has taken a sword into his own hand taking matters and taking justice into his own hands and rendering an eye for an eye and that is not the way of christ and that is not the way of the christian life that is not when we find ourselves in the midst of of evil And mind you, God does allow evil to touch his people's lives. I believe firmly and biblically for redemptive and good reasons, but he does permit evil to touch the lives of his people. He does not guarantee in any way, shape, or form that he will keep us from the touch of evil. He does promise to preserve his people through evil. You look at the history of, of the Bible um, God allowed Joseph to fall into his um, ill intended brother's hands, who threw him into a pit and then sold him into slavery. That God allowed the, t- uh, the, the touch of evil Pharaoh to enslave people and kill children, the people of Israel. That God allowed David to be in the hands of faithless and um, ruthless King Saul. That you get to the end of the Bible revelation and you realize that, that um, the beast was given permission to wage war against the saints and he killed them. So God does allow evil into the lives of his people. He does promise to preserve us through it and at the end of all of that is always redemption and goodness for his people. But nonetheless, you can feel it. And what do you do in those moments? When you feel the injury of injustice. That That fleshly human instinct of pride is to react and to take matters into your own hands. And Jesus, that is not the way of Christ. That is not the way of Christ. In the midst of evil, um, we are called to do good and to love and to show kindness even while that's happening. By the way, the Holy Spirit allows us the power actually to do that. God's grace works in the heart to allow us to do that. And I would imagine in this room, there are people who, this is real time, you're like, well, I'm, I'm feeling the heat of, of I, I feel like the victim right now. And um, I'm angry, I'm upset. And you have a right to be angry, angry, and you have a right to be upset. But you don't have a right as a Christian to take vengeance into your own hands. That's what we don't have the right to. Now let me answer a question you might be thinking Christian is called to live a life where evil is overcome by goodness. Does that mean that we as Christians should be pacifists? That's the question I thought was, Dan, given the sermon. Someone's going to say, so I can't be a police officer? Can't shoot a gun? I can't be part of the military? I can't launch a, a, you know, a missile or fight, be a fighter pilot? Is that what that means? Because it sure seems when you're, you know, you're, you're flying a, a fighter jet and you push something, that's a sword, right? That's, that's inflicting judgment. No, is the answer. To think that every Christian has to be a pacifist, or that we must be pacifists, is to confuse two very, in my opinion, very clear um, spheres of God's sovereign working, or what one author called sphere sovereignty. That God has, has ordained two institutions, at least two, but for the sake of our argument, two institutions. That God has... has has ordained government to exist. And that government exists by God's ordination to establish justice and righteousness and to punish the evildoer. Even with, and Paul uses the word sword in Romans 13. That 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 is within the sovereign permission of governing bodies to use the sword. And carry out justice so if a Christian happens to be a person who wears a police officer's hat has a gun or happens to be one of those people on a submarine to launch missiles that within that sphere that God has ordained one can exercise their duty with a clear conscience that they are doing God's work that's not a pacifist side, but there's another institution that God has ordained and that is the church God's people And when we go about doing the work of Christ, um, expanding his kingdom um, as a church committed to the cause of Christ, we do not carry with that the freedom to use the sword, at least not one made of steel. Rather, the weapons of the church have always been, and the only thing that can truly transform a society is the proclamation of the gospel, of the good news, of being able to declare to the world. Listen, uh, Christ has triumphed Over sin at the cross, which means that you are accepted and forgiven if you trust in him. That's the good news. Your sin has been paid for, and guess what? He rose from the dead, which means we don't have to fear death anymore. And when you give your last breath, that's not it. That's just the beginning of a new life. And he's coming again, and he will restore and make all things new. Now, that's, that's the weapon of the church to declare good news that Christ has conquered. That's our weapon. That's what God has authorized the church to do, we as Christians to do, and to do so with loving, gracious, compassionate spirits, and to do so on our knees. That's two different spheres, and understanding both of those God-ordained spheres of authority um, is important to understand the answer to that question, but it's not the main point of the message, just answering a side question. So here you have two rather dark colors come out, that I think most of us can identify with and probably realize that we've failed in in some ways of using Jesus as a means to an end. And the second one is taking justice into your own hands and returning evil for evil rather than goodness. And this is where Christ comes shining out in all of his glory. Um, This is the beauty of who he is. And actually, before I even read that text, I told you that I wanted to come back to the question that Jesus asked Judas. You notice Jesus doesn't seem by way of description, Jesus doesn't seem rattled, doesn't seem worried, doesn't seem panicked, and he's certainly not caught off guard. He's the one asking the questions, and he's the one telling people what to do. Ironic. But the question to Judas, when he says, Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Why did, why did he ask that question? Why take the time? Why take the breath? Judas isn't worth it, you might think. You know, my best reason for Jesus to ask that question, because it's a stinging question. Are you really going to sell me out and do so with a sign of affection? That, that, that question has a sting to it. And I believe, if you will... It was the last call for repentance. Even in the midst of his betrayer, he gives the mercy of asking a question that is, I think, the last call for repentance. That's an amazing heart that can do that. Instead of punching a guy in the face, he asks the question, like I said, I believe to incite repentance. And of course, he does not of course there's what then what he says to his disciples verse 51 now he turns to the other 11 no more of this stop it x neon the the ord stay no more sword no more fighting no more blood in part it's probably at least in part to protect his own disciples i mean come on two swords 11 guys against an armed crowd you guys are stupid you're going to create a massacre for yourself But it's more than that. You realize in saying this and in what he does, the action that follows, he's caring for everybody there. Not only his friends, but also his enemies. I mean, he he touches the ear and heals, heals him. I mean, he does this miracle to the servant of an enemy right in front of everybody, displaying compassion, grace, kindness, and power. Right in the midst of this dark, Moment where Jesus said, this is your hour, the power of darkness. What's he doing? He's healing. He's caring for those around us. And this will be sustained all the way through the rest of the book. Not once. And this is... I mean, I'd, I'd be ticked off if I was Jesus. And I would, be, I would be hurling condemnations and saying, just wait until God comes back. You guys are going to fry in a frying pan. That's, that's how I'd feel. But all the way through you find that Jesus is not concerned about his own justice in the moment. I mean, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's encouraging the women who are coming alongside, listen, don't worry for me. He's concerned about a thief on a cross. Um, He's he's concerned about his mother. He's just like, you realize just in the middle of a time in which Jesus should be very me-focused, he's not. He's others-focused. He's just, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's loving, and here he's caring for his enemies. Not once does he condemn his enemies Not once. Why is that? He's faithful faithful and he didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to condemn them. He didn't come to condemn his enemies because Scripture tells us that everyone is his enemy by way of sin. He didn't come to condemn. He came to be condemned for us. That's grace. That's beauty of God's gracious, merciful love coming to us and taking our place. That is, and here you're already sensing the cross. What Jesus is going to die is to heal us, to heal our hearts and heal us of the, of the stain of sin and the sting of death. He's come to heal us, and right here we already already see that. That's what he's come to do, and that's the, that's the beauty of Christ Next to the ugliness of Judas Judas, and the ugliness of, of Peter, here is a man who comes shining out, who is um, who's worthy of, of following. You see, in one sense, Jesus' life is the way we're to live. In another sense, it establishes the worthiness of why we worship him. You know, Jesus was a person who could actually forgive on the cross. He's somebody who could show kindness to enemies. And you know why? I believe it's because um, Jesus in his humanity could defer justice to his father. That's right out of um, the epistle of Peter. That Jesus was reviled and so forth and, and endured it willingly, trusting, entrusting himself, entrusting his life to the one who judges righteously. You think about that. If you can defer justice, if you can defer the personal injury that you feel because someone else wronged you, defer it to God's justice, that frees you from having to, one, enact justice yourself, and it frees you to be kind and loving, even to person who's being mean to you in the moment, because you're able to defer justice to God, knowing you got this, and you're going to work this out for me, so I can be free from my need to fulfill my own just appetites, and I can love instead of take vengeance. I believe that's part of how Christ did it. He just trusted himself to the Lord, knew that God is just, he's got this, and so I can offer myself to, to, um, to be kind to even my enemies. But he's also, as I said, that's the way we're supposed to live, but it also establishes the worthiness of Jesus. Um, this is the heart of our King, the heart of our Savior, who was not concerned about his own justice in the moment. He was concerned about us. He did not condemn us, but he willingly took upon himself our condemnation so that we could go free. And you know what? That's worthy of our love. That's worthy of rejoicing in. It's worthy of, of centering your life on. It's worthy of being the central passion and obsession of one's own being. Because he is that beautiful and that glorious and that, that wonderful. So I, I, I pray this, this morning. I, I realized after the first service that I probably should have paused and I didn't. So I'm going to do close now with a, a, just a pause for a second. And I just want, if you would, just close your eyes, not to be old school or anything. Just close your eyes for a second. Let me just ask you a couple questions. And these are um, questions that you don't have to answer to me. Just answer them for your own heart and life having heard this message do you feel do you believe that Jesus is the end and not the means be honest with yourself be honest with God is is God just a means to something else some side benefit you don't have to hide it from him because you know he knows anyway but he wants you to own it if that's you, you've got to recognize what I just saw or what we just said in the beauty of Christ and his mercy and forgiveness, even giving a last-minute plea for repentance. Um, God is a forgiving God, and if that's you, confess it to him. Say, God, you are not what I worship. I worship something else, be it money or success or praise. Now ask him to change that, that he would be the true center once again, or maybe he's never been the center Ask him to open your eyes, that you might see him high and lifted up, and that your heart would faint for him, that you, like a deer, would pant for him, as a deer pants for water. Maybe you're a person who has been um, victimized, and you have found yourself angry, and maybe that anger has turned to bitterness something contemporary or something long ago. I think this morning is a good time to relinquish. Ask the Lord to help you relinquish it. Defer your need for justice. And trust God has it covered. And ask him to give you the freedom to be kind again. Kind to the person who's injured you. As Jesus was kind to those who arrested him. Just ask him right now. It's just, Lord, help me. This is a, an area I struggle. Again, knowing that God is kind, and gracious, forgiving. He heals. He makes whole. And for all of us, take a moment just to pray that Parkway family would be consumed, compelled, Moved by the riches of Christ's love, by the glory of his name. Just pray that we would have a real, truth centered, Christ centered passion for him, that there would be no idols other than him. And he's not an idol, he is living and active, loving and powerful.